0: If I were to tell you that we're playing a game of word association, and I said the word fragile to you, what would come to mind? You might consider other words, of course. Words like weak, delicate, frail, breakable, but what real, physical object or material would you think of? I'll give you a moment to work on that. Is it glass? That's what I'd think of, at least, and many others would think the same. The thing about glass is that it's just damned interesting. I mean, you would never guess that its creation was filled with red-hot furnaces, metal tubes, iron tongs, and, well, other devices that look more at home in a medieval torture chamber. A pile of seemingly random, unremarkable powders is heated into a glowing molten orb before being twisted, pinched, pulled, scored, and even blown up like a balloon until the final form is achieved. The process itself is, like most functional art, extremely unforgiving. One mistake, and your end result is rendered unattainable. And from there, the dangerous part begins. Cooling. Glass is a funny material when it comes to temperature. The process of forming it from its constituent parts causes an incredible amount of energy to be stored in the form of heat, which then begins to radiate into the surrounding area in order to dissipate the excess energy. But this process can't happen naturally. If it does, thinner pieces will cool more quickly than others, and in doing so, they'll contract and and shear away from the larger, warmer pieces. Now, This can result in anything from cracks and chips to complete destruction, and the solution is to cool any piece of glass slowly, with a gradually decreasing temperature. A process that takes hours, not minutes. And if you're dealing with a large enough piece of glass, or one that's intricate enough... It may even take a day or more to get started, much less finish. Even once that's complete, a number of things can destroy all of the care and work that went into the making of such a thing. If, after all of this, that glass is very cold and exposed to intense heat, the glass expands too quickly and it will crack, shatter, or explode. I mean, we've all heard horror stories about any glass that isn't Pyrex, right? Or the opposite can happen. A very hot piece of glass suddenly gets very cold. It contracts rapidly and is destroyed. If you drop it, it breaks. Put it under pressure, tap it with a hammer, and you can kiss that lovely vase, plate, or bowl goodbye. There's a very good reason that we associate glass with fragility. But what's strange to me is that we often distort that association into a state of near-mutual dependence. That is, if it's not glass or does not have the same qualities as glass, it's either not fragile at all or is only some other type of awkward not-quite-fragile, as if fragility only exists outside of glass as a sort of reference point or meme. It's strange, but understandable. Imagine living your life being constantly aware that the things which we use to measure who and what we are tend to be just as frail, just as delicate and just as temperamental as glass. Things like families, relationships, careers, gods and nations. Mr Pop <laughs> The past few days when I've been at that window upstairs, I've thought a bit of the shining city upon a hill. The phrase comes from John Winthrop, who wrote it to describe the America he imagined. What he imagined was important because he was an early pilgrim, an early freedom man. He journeyed here on what today we call a little wooden boat. And like the other pilgrims, he was looking for a home that would be free. At 1147 in the morning on January 20th, 2017, Donald Trump was sworn in as the 45th president of the United States of America. His rise to the presidency was startling to most of the world, especially after he had dipped his toes in the water so many times. He had previously gone as far as to release an ad in the Boston Globe, outlining a position we're now familiar with, that those who benefit from U.S. protection owe the U.S. money for services rendered. In 1988, he was apparently on the list of considerations for vice president under George Bush. In 2000, he entered primary competition for the presidential ballot under the Reform Party, but bowed out before the general election. In 2012, he announced that he would not run in a very strange speech at the Conservative Political Action Conference. He served as a surrogate for Romney during the general election following that. But in 2016, he did run, and he pulled it off, owing no small part of his victory to one phrase, make America great again. Now, you and I might think that a campaign slogan doesn't do much, and in many cases, it doesn't. For example, Clinton and Stronger Together, Romney and Believe in America, or Kucinich and Strength through Peace. Not terribly inspiring. On the other hand, there's the occasional slogan that really just works, like Vote for the Crook, It's Important, from 1991. Unofficial, but effective in a campaign between a crooked schmuck and a former Grand Wizard of the Louisiana Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Make America Great Again, though. I mean, that one had a special ring to it, and it took hold in strangely powerful ways. It's short, but not too short. It feels good to say it makes a great hashtag, but more importantly, it allows every person that says it to conjure up their own vision of what that means, typically with superficially shared ideas linking one person to the next. Fortunately, the basic structure of how we go through that process of personal conjuring is fairly uniform. Unfortunately, that's not exactly a good thing. Now, at this point, people typically start to ask defensive questions like, what, you don't want to make America great again? And I'll just be honest, it isn't that I feel any way about that idea at all. It's that the idea itself makes no sense. I'd sooner be willing to say that North Korea should share its supply of unicorns with the Western world, or else. Or that I don't like it when rain falls up. Or that I'm on this new fad diet where I'm hoping to lose fat and gain muscle by living off of brownies and simple syrup. That's a pretty bold statement on my part, so I'm sort of obliged to back that up, which I will. Uh, But first, let me throw out a few caveats. One. This is not intended to be an in-depth thesis. I mean, that's a bit much for me to tackle as a layman and is well outside the goals of this project. Two, since I'm not planning on going quite that crazy with it, you might notice that I'll be dealing with some concepts that, at least for now, seem vague and difficult to connect. This will be a three-part series, so don't let a few loose ends worry you just yet. Three, even having said that... Some of the concepts we're going to deal with over the following episodes will still be held at a sort of arm's length. This is intentional. I'm not your professor, your dad, your boss, or your mentor. I'm not here to feed you answers. If you're looking for that, go elsewhere. I mean, there are plenty of hacks who want to sell their high poplarums and low hirams. I'm not one of them. With that said, let's get down to business. It's important to look specifically at the phrase itself, and the one word in it that changes everything. Again. Now, without that word, the whole slogan falls apart, and it has no more impact or purpose than stronger together or believe in America. Now, you might think that's silly, but trust me, one word can change everything. If you don't believe me, go ask a, a theologian, a philosopher, or an economist, whoever. Now, if we were to parse the Trump campaign slogan while omitting that one word— We would only ever arrive at one conclusion. Sounds good, feels great, means nothing. Not unlike saying you gave 110% or that you aren't here to win, you're here to do your best. Beyond that, just saying that you want to make America great is a completely undefined goal. I mean, what is great? How are you going to make it great? When will you know you've succeeded? What are your criterion for greatness? And what methodology will you use to measure the progress towards those criterion? But you slap that extra word on the end and it changes everything. It says that if you want to make America great again, you just need to turn around and look back. Or at least, that's what we tell ourselves. And that's when you run into the problem. Looking back. I mean, making America great again has a pretty loaded implication to it. Because it just means that the way things used to be were better. As far as rational statements go, this is just a false start. It's a fallacy with a number of different names. Informal, but still pretty bad. There's the Golden Age fallacy, the Good Old Days fallacy, and there's even regional variants, such as the Merry Old England fallacy with King Arthur and Knights of the Round Table and all that. The best way to describe it, though, is just calling it what it is. Nostalgia. And you can always tell when it's being invoked or relied on because it takes on a very vague assumption that the world, and even the people living in the world, used to be better in one way or another. Some examples of the Golden Age fallacy would be the following statements. Our current problems are the judgment of God. The Republican Party is ineffective because it's become too liberal. Smartphones and the internet have ruined millennials. Millennials are the problem with the world today. Look, let's just take a second here. This is usually uttered in the same argument as the previous statement, regardless of the fact that if smartphones and the internet have ruined millennials, then smartphones and the internet are the problem with the world today, but that's neither here nor there. Okay, next statement on the list. Porn has rendered people incapable of having meaningful relationships today, and so has casual dating, premarital sex, and seeking gender equality in relationships. There's always the inference that what we ought to be doing today is how it was back then. Christians were better. Uh, Conservatives were more conservative and, and thus more virtuous. People weren't sucked into their online world. People weren't lazy or arrogant or weak or entitled. And without modern standards and concepts, sexual, emotional, social, and hierarchical relationships were easier, better, and by extension, somehow morally superior. Now, this doesn't mean that something in the past couldn't have been better. For example, if you were to say wages used to be better, education used to mean more, and retiring at a good age was easier, you wouldn't be wrong. If you were specific about when and where those things were better, and in what way. But going to the dentist... Um, car safety standards and measures, access to clean water, an abundance of food, and my ability to just go out and buy a pair of merino socks. I'm, I'm pretty good with what we have now on those fronts. But what we're talking about, though, is, is wholesale nostalgia. The idea that everything was better, usually due to a single factor that is portrayed as having a significant and incalculably broad influence. But that's a topic for a different time outside of this series. And before you're tempted to say that this is an ironically new thing, let me just stop you right there. Envisioning a golden age isn't new. In the 80s, things were better before computers. In the 50s, things were better before TV, things were better before radio, newspapers, pulp fiction, before cars, which, by the way, were called bedrooms on wheels by many prudish grandmothers in the 20th century. Things were even better before the telegram. 24-hour news cycles, daily news, weekly news, hell, even monthly news. I mean, that takes care of the past few centuries or so, of course, but this goes back much further. As a particularly relevant example, we're going to tap into some of the classics. Lucius Aeneas Seneca wrote the Moral Letters to Lucilius in the 1st century CE. In letters 88 and 90, in particular... Seneca lays on the golden age guilt with a heavy hand, decrying the modern devolution of man's moral state. In letter 88, he utterly lambasts any study undertaken in order to amass money. The only study worthy of a freeborn man, Seneca says, is, quote, that which gives man his liberty, end quote, meaning that he must study philosophy in order to live a good, virtuous life. In letter 90, he takes this distinction of virtue to its ultimate conclusion, I'll just read a snippet where Seneca refers to Posidonius, a Greek Stoic and an influence of his, from around the 1st century BCE. Quote, In that age which is maintained to be the golden age, Posidonius holds that the government was under the jurisdiction of the wise. They kept their hands under control and protected the weaker from the stronger. They gave advice both to do and not to do. They showed what was useful and what was useless. Their forethought provided that their subjects should lack for nothing. Their bravery warded off dangers, their kindness enriched and adorned their subjects. For them, ruling was a service, not an exercise of royalty. No ruler tried his power against those to whom he owed the beginnings of his power, and no one had the inclination or the excuse to do wrong, since the ruler ruled well and the subject obeyed well, and the king could utter no greater threat against disobedient subjects than that they should depart from the kingdom." End quote. Vice, he then says, stolen and kingdoms were transformed into tyrannies. Now here, as Seneca writes, he departs from the reasoning of Posidonius, who argued that the beautiful creations of man stem from philosophy and thus are virtuous. Quote, believe me, that was a happy age before the days of architects, before the days of builders. All this sort of thing was born when luxury was being born. End quote. The vice which rendered kingdoms down into the concentrated, despotic cesspools to which Seneca refers is, in a word, technology. The decadence ushered in by these modern crafts of architecture and engineering were nothing more than selling one sole device because, in his words, "...a thatched roof once covered free men, while under marble and gold dwells slavery." Seneca offers us, I think, a very telling example of some of the most common nostalgic rhetoric that I've been exposed to for much of my life. I grew up in a conservative religious household, and the idea of a past puritanical golden age of sorts was omnipresent. The American kingdom was turned to a vice-ridden, despotic failure by things like liberalism, atheism, homosexuality, feminism, government overreach, and a host of other things like postmodernism and relativism the singular source though is one that i mentioned earlier turning away from god and and thereby losing through a lack of grace or providence or something the wise men who kept their hands under control gave advice and were loyal to those who chose them everything else stemmed from that like the breaching of a dam For all that Seneca's sentiment seems to match what you might hear in everyday conversations, his observations aren't the only feature of how we talk about the past. You'll note, for example, that there's very little offered by Seneca in the way of specific judgments against people, which doesn't fit how we tend to see things. For Seneca, and for any other Stoic, the men who crept into the kingdom with their vices and schemes were not evil per se. They did an evil thing, yes, but the cosmopolitan leanings of Stoicism don't allow a practitioner of Stoic virtue to view that person as evil. In letter 28, Seneca says as much, telling Lucilius, I am not so shameless as to undertake to cure my fellow men when I am ill myself. For a Stoic, there is no condemnation, there's only sharing remedies found through trial and error just as if we were lying ill in the same hospital. American political discourse, however, focuses heavily on the loss of a golden age due to evil people, who in turn cannot help but do evil things. Which brings us to a source you might not know, but should take some time to read. Hesiod. In the epic poem, Works and Days, Hesiod recalls separate, gradually lessening ages which begin with a golden age. The first race was the golden race who, quote, lived like gods without sorrow of heart, remote and free from toil and grief. Miserable age rested not on them, but with legs and arms never failing, they made merry with feasting beyond the reach of all evils, End quote. The rebellion of Zeus against his father, Cronus, triggered a war called the Titanomachy, which more or less sealed the fate of the golden age. The second age saw the ascension of Zeus to divine supremacy, and, according to Hesiod, resulted in a race that was, quote, like the golden race neither in body nor in spirit, due to the fact that a child was brought up at his good mother's side an hundred years, an utter simpleton, playing childishly in his own home, end quote. Even though they lived longer than we ourselves do, that hang-up with playing childishly never seemed to bother them. And they never lamented the wasting of their limited life because they, quote, could not keep from sinning and from wronging one another. Nor would they serve the immortals, nor sacrifice on the holy altars of the blessed ones, as it is right for men to do wherever they dwell. This race, which seemed to spend the majority of its lifespan stuck in the terrible twos, were the people of the Silver Age, and perhaps demonstrate that everyone is bad at everything at one point or another even if they're the most easily recognized figure in popular mythology. You know, it's whatever. Now This process repeated itself three more times, with the Bronze Age being populated by a race divined into being from ash trees, though that race turned out to be, quote, in no way equal to the Silver Age, but was terrible and strong, end quote. He describes them as hard of heart, like adamant, unconquerable, and tells the reader that they were, quote, destroyed by their own hands and passed to the dank house of chill Hades, End quote. Zeus, it seems, decided that he had overcompensated this time, and though Hesiod says they were destroyed by their own hands, it's generally accepted that Zeus wiped them out with a flood, but it was totally, like, their fault, you know? Following the Bronze Age was a slightly better affair with a race quote, which was nobler and more righteous—a godlike race of hero men who are called demigods. End quote. Now this ushered in the Heroic Age, with heroes such as Achilles, Aeneas, Amphion, and yes, Heracles, though we typically call him by his Roman name, Hercules. After death, they lived on in the fields of Elysium as a sign of favor from Zeus. Well, except Heracles, he won the golden ticket and ascended to Mount Olympus to dwell with the gods and live in a place that was dank and chill, but in a really different way from that other race. After them came men who were upon the bounteous earth, which was the introduction of the fifth and current age. The odd part about that is that it wasn't really a completely different age in that it was only a few generations after the heroic age. It's just that humankind, as it turned out, wasn't quite as epic as Hector versus Achilles all day every day, so of course you you gotta have a new age to explain that, apparently. Hesiod seemed to have a particular disdain for this final Iron Age. His summary, like Seneca's summary of Posidonius, is hard to top, so I'll just give you the whole kernel. It's a little long, but... Dare I say it, they don't write like they used to. And it'll help you grasp the full breadth of Hesiod's dislike for his fellow men, which is pretty intense. Quote, Thereafter, would that I were not among the men of the fifth generation, but either had died before or been born afterwards. For now truly is a race of iron, and men never rest from labor and sorrow by day and from perishing by night, and the gods shall lay sore trouble upon them. But notwithstanding, even these shall have some good mingled with their evils, and Zeus will destroy this race of mortal men also, when they come to have gray hair on the temples at their birth. The father will not agree with his children, nor the children with their father, nor guest with his host, nor comrade with comrade. Nor will brother be dear to brother as aforetime. Men will dishonor their parents as they grow quickly old, and will carp at them, chiding them with bitter words, hard-hearted they, not knowing the fear of the gods. They will not repay their aged parents the cost their nurture, for might shall be their right, and one man will sack another's city. There will be no favor for the man who keeps his oath, or for the just, or for the good. But rather, men will praise the evildoer and his violent dealing. Strength will be right, and reverence will cease to be, and the wicked will hurt the worthy man, speaking false words against him, and will swear an oath upon them. Envy, foul-mouthed, delighting in evil with scowling face, will go along with wretched men one at all. And then Eidos and Nemesis, with their sweet forms wrapped in white robes, will go from the wide-pathed earth and forsake mankind to join the company of the deathless gods, and bitter sorrows will be left for mortal men. And there will be no help against evil. End quote. What's most interesting in comparing the views of Seneca and Hesiod is that we can see a distinct difference in how they envision the past being better, and therefore what steps might be necessary to attain that prior glory. For Posidonius and then Seneca, man was once better and can become better, though they disagree on how man first fell and thus should rise. For Hesiod, the failure is intrinsic. Man is not worse now because he has failed. Man was a failure by some design, but was preceded by beings who were better, or at least greater, or more powerful. The solution in that sort of scenario is unobtainable, and to avoid the problem means that one would either have to be born before the Iron Race or after the Iron Race. Seneca, Posidonius, and many of their contemporaries call for a sort of rugged individualism of the soul, while Hesiod seems to long for... I don't know, a zombie apocalypse, uh, a meteor, or, God help us, the literal realization of the day after tomorrow. To make matters even worse, the heroic age and the iron age, just like I said before, aren't even really different ages in the same way as the previous three ages. The gold, silver, and bronze ages are all marked by what we might call extinction events, with the silver and bronze races being intentionally wiped out by Zeus. But the heroic age was separated only by about... Six generations from the Iron Age. I mean, this puts the Iron Age in a special position, since the only thing separating them from eternal glory as a default game mode for the afterlife was that they were created by Zeus or the gods, rather than being distantly related to Zeus or the gods. To put a real number on that, we'll say that a generation is 20 years. The heroic age was as distant to the first men of the Iron Age as, say, the presidency of Theodore Roosevelt is to us. Except that buried in there... Is that one important loophole? Even these shall have some good mingled with their evils. Now, a sentence like that gives you all sorts of wiggle room, doesn't it? I mean, it's the definition of a Yahtzee moment. The odds are against you, you're up against the wall, and then you roll your random dice and you hit the combination you need to pull out of the pack, maybe even win the game. Why am I talking about Yahtzee? No one plays that game. Anyway, that one sentence, the acceptance that Hesiod assumes some are good people, is huge. So huge, in fact, that we can now refer to Plato in order to realize the sort of impact it might have. Now, before I go any further, I need to throw out another quick note. This is not going to turn into an in-depth analysis of Plato. We're going to gloss over, not because I don't care to make some deep and meaningful point. I don't have the patience for that because Plato is insufferably dense. I've done one close reading of this particular work, And that's really all I have the stomach for, so consider this a sort of conceptual primer to move the point forward. Also, keep in mind that Plato will make an appearance in future episodes. In Book 8 of Republic, Plato seems to tip his hat to Hesiod. It's really more likely that they simply shared similar views, being part of the same general culture, of course, but Plato hones in on good mingling with evils. Throughout the republic Plato operates on the assumption that there are different types of people all crammed into Hesiod's fifth race. And these types of people simply are what they are and they can't change that. So it's a sort of precursor to social darwinism if you will. The superior should lead, the inferior should follow, but preferably they should be removed from the, uh, you know, equation. Now this difference causes conflict, he argues, because what we might call intrinsic inequalities are the places from which, quote, arise dissimilarity and inequality and irregularity, which always and in all places are causes of hatred and war, end quote. Unlike Seneca, though, the solution here is not a matter of personal virtue. The solution is a function of an ideal state. It's an inexorable consequence of doing things just the right way. This, he argues, is because states are as the men are. They grow out of human characters. In order to present this solution, Plato dedicates time to categorizing the various types of people. He outlines an idea that within the fifth race there are four types of people in two tiers which are organized by their soul, or what we would call their genetic makeup in very loose terms today. There are the gold and silver souls who are superior. Then there are the brass and iron souls who are inferior. He then goes on to link qualities of the state to the qualities of the people, ranging from tyranny, the worst, to aristocracy, the best, with each type feeding into and being fed by people belonging to this category and that. The aristocracy is the state of the gold and silver souls, where superior people flourish and inferior people wither. Now this is then exaggerated by a complex standard of certification and licensing both to marry and to breed that is both fascinating and terrible, but we're not going to go into that right now. You should definitely read it, though. The implicit arrangement here is that left to its own devices, the fifth race that are on the bounty as Earth is essentially doomed, first to mediocrity and moral decline, then failure, and finally, extinction. The mechanic for this is very simple. A select group is not just capable, but worthy of ascending to prior greatness. This is comforting, of course, because people are strange and seem to always identify with that specific group. I mean, the one we don't identify with that we aren't part of, well, I mean, that group is the problem, right? They're hopeless. Eliminating them is the solution, because who knows what we could achieve without them. For Plato, for Hesiod, for Seneca, Posidonius, Cato, Cicero, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, Ronald Reagan, for all of these people we say were great. What we ought to be doing is what they were doing, but ironically, they felt the same. And there's always that same current hidden just beneath the surface, isn't there? I mean, you and I, well, we're the good guys. It'll be a long, hard fight that we may not live to see the end of, but eventually our people, our good guys, will reclaim virtue, honor, moral excellence, uh, etc., etc. We'll bring back the age of heroes, the free men under roofs of thatch who study only that which gives them their liberty. Cue Alex Jones' rant here. For the others, well... They're the tyrants. They're the ones who smuggle vice into the kingdom, who won't agree with their children or their own parents, for whom might is their birthright, not because might makes right, but because their existence infers worth, and thus the right to rule. Brass and iron souls. Now, in all honesty, I like that idea. I mean, not my view of it, but the idea itself. I like it. I want it to be true. And that might make you think some nasty things about me, and that's fine, but... Let's be real here. If we can't be honest about our worst inclinations, how can we be honest about our best hopes? Just something to keep in your mind. For example, I look back on my own life and I can easily find a time that was simply better. It's a small window, but it's there. It's a time before joint paint, before loss, shame, guilt, anger. It's a time where a weekday afternoon in the summer was playing in the pool, eating five sandwiches in a sitting, and then drifting off to a nap on the living room floor while Batman and Wonder Woman reruns played on TV land. I knew who I was, where I was, how the world worked, and it all made sense. Cartoons were documentaries from alternate dimensions, obviously, and bedtime was the time to stage firefights with my G.I. Joes under my cowboy-themed blanket with a flashlight. By that point in my life, I think the worst I'd really suffered through was a few broken bones. That's about it. And when I look at the history of the world, it's easy to see things in the same simple terms. And doing so allows me to experience the same feelings. Because, uh, look, let's not lie to ourselves. This phenomenon is very much about how we feel. It's incredibly tempting to see a photograph, a single letter, a snippet of comically fast and, you know, sort of herky-jerky film, and pin everything we know about the past to that one thing. Those are, to us, real things, and we can therefore see them as bearing more weight than, say, a dry historical analysis. We can extrapolate a lot of appealing information from a picture of a stern man with perfectly composed attire and hair, and all of those things are stuff that we don't get from the other information we have access to, with none of those extrapolations being anything more than whimsy and wish. And so we say that people don't care about how they dress these days, or that women were more modest back then, or any of a number of things. And as we do that, we construct for ourselves a time that we long to see revived within our lifespan, which means that we can easily find ourselves pursuing policies and beliefs and social standards or stigmas which are designed to, as we tell ourselves, return us to a better time. The reality, though, is that we simply want to make a fantasy come true without ever considering the difference between fantasy and reality. It's kind of one of those situations where you have to be careful what you wish for, right? It's always comfortable to know where you stand, to know who the bad guys and the good guys are, and it's comfortable because we can only assign those titles after we feel like we've figured things out. So, if or when we question those things, it can be incredibly difficult and complex. It's not as easy as making a list of pros and cons, finding some sort of net benefit outcome where the good guys win. This isn't a game of risk. We're not just figuring out a way to gridlock our opponents until it's time to exploit their weaknesses. When I, for example, ask myself, where do I stand in all of this? I'm not taking note of strategy, tactics, deployments, wars with winners and losers. No matter how I might pitch it, that question cannot do anything but cause me to question who I am and what my life means. And that's a terrifying thing to do. If you don't believe me, try it on for size. Just sit down and summon up a list of things that make you not just who you are, but which make you good in your own eyes. Now consider the idea that those things don't make you good. In fact, they make you evil. And I'm not saying you should figure out how you'd change to be good in the end anyway. This isn't Judge Dredd. I mean, think about everything that implies. This is who you are now. The things you've done, the things you've supported, the things that you've spent money on, the words you've said, advice you've given, all of it. Just cut it off from that foundation of it was a good thing to do and ask yourself how that realization would affect you. If you were to genuinely experience this, here's the effect it would have. A crisis of ontological security. It's okay if you've never heard of it in that terminology. Most people haven't, so let's talk about that for a moment. Ontological security is a theory of how we pursue mental well-being, mostly by sociologists, but it's also used in political science. It's the description of a stable mental state, or as described by sociologist Anthony Giddens, it's a sense of order and continuity in events. It's the way that we look at our lives and extract meaning from it. An ontologically secure person will, say, look at their job and understand what their job allows them to do and how they contribute to society through performing their duties on the clock. A member of our armed services, for example, will extract meaning from even some of the worst experiences imaginable in favor of serving, protecting, and honoring their country and fellow citizens. They can witness the death of a close friend and keep finding meaning in their job because of the importance of their responsibilities, which gives them a sense of continuity. Well, some of them anyway. That, of course doesn't make ontological security a good thing. It's a stable mental state, not a healthy mental state. Pol Pot, for example, probably had a pretty stable mental state, ontologically speaking, but he doesn't seem to be the best that humanity has ever offered up. We find our stability not in goodness or badness, but in routine, in a world that isn't dissonant to us individually. We find stability in understanding our place in things, what's going on, who we are, and what we can do to control things within our perception of the world. In a paper titled Ontological Security and World Politics, Jennifer Mitzen, a professor of political science for the University of Ohio, does an amazing job of making just that point. She had this to say, quote, because routines sustain identity, actors become attached to them. Individuals like to feel they have agency and become attached to practices that make them feel agentic. Letting go of routines would amount to sacrificing that sense of agency, which is hard to do. Importantly, attachment can develop to dangerous, as well as safe, routines. Ontological security is perfectly compatible with physical insecurity. Think of the battered wife who resists efforts by social workers to make her leave her husband. One possible explanation for her reluctance is that powerful ontological forces induce her to stay. The identity of wife means that at least she knows who she is and how to be herself through the couple's routines. To break from those would cause great anxiety because routinized social relations stabilize our identities. Individuals become attached to the self-conceptions their routines support, regardless of their content. Equally important, routines depend on others responding predictably, which, of course, individuals cannot always control. Powerful external actors and hostile environments help determine how an individual's intentional actions are received. This suggests that the self-conceptions that motivate intentional action cannot always be reinforced, and when this happens, an individual may well develop a basic trust system that supports a less desired self. End quote. Mitzen then goes on to describe what supporting a lesser self entails. She describes a waiter who wants to be an actor. He's a waiter, yes, but will someday not be, and that is as much an element of stability to him as what he currently is. Over time, he continues to be a waiter who wants to be an actor. The importance of someday becoming an actor fades until finally, it doesn't make sense to see him as someone who will become someone else. He simply is who he is, a waiter who wanted to be an actor, but now, probably doesn't. Now that you know a bit more about what ontological security is, let's return to that thought experiment from earlier. Try it again. This time, try to understand the stakes. Think of the confusion and desperation from some traumatic event. Your first breakup, the loss of a loved one, getting fired from that dream job, being cheated on. The reason those events are so brutal is because they challenge our stability. They take our sense of continuity from us. They cause us to question ourselves, who we are, who we have been, who we will become, all without presenting any clear answers. Of course, it isn't always so stark. I mean, sometimes it's a quick change that we don't notice, and that quick change leaves us feeling odd. While we don't notice anything, we can't help feeling like we're stumbling around in a space which moments before was clearly lit. And so, we diversify our portfolio. A sense of being that's so fragile is a bad idea, so we attempt to build buffers, carve out niches, ways for us to maintain agency, ways for us to continue asserting ourselves as stable beings in a world that is anything but stable. Each of these buffers is just as fragile as we ourselves are, but the more you have, the more widely spread your sense of security is. It's easier to compensate than it is to rebuild, after all, just as it's easier to overcome the loss of a leg than to cope with full paralysis. This act of diversification is what's called a phenomenal world. Phenomenal worlds are strings and networks of events that, as they occur, are given significance, validation, and support in order to increase our sense of stability and agency. An example of how that works is given in Modernity and Self by Giddens, the same Giddens from before. Quote, A person may be on the telephone to someone 12,000 miles away, and for the duration of the conversation be more closely bound up with the responses of that distant individual than with others sitting in the same room. End quote. In other words, the things that we choose to bring into our world are what we accept and identify with. Giddens takes particular care to outline this across a number of circumstances, from unification versus fragmentation to personalized versus commodified experiences. And what he argues is this, what's happening in the lives of our friends and families are more real to us than, say, the building conditions for famine in Yemen right now, even though both are objectively equal in their reality. Both sequences of events are happening, and both have an impact, regardless of degree or extent, but if your sister is in the hospital, you're more concerned for her than you are for the people of Yemen, aren't you? Similarly, even if you're in the hospital walking to your sister's room, you will be in closer proximity to suffering on an equal or greater scale than that faced by your sister, yet that won't be as real as her pain or suffering. In many cases, what we incorporate into our customized little bubble of existence contains a range of good things, and I mean that as a blanket statement. There's no single person on Earth who does not incorporate some good, no matter how big or small, into their world. But on the other hand, the opposite is also true. No single person on Earth doesn't also incorporate plenty of bad things. That's worth stressing that neither ontological security nor the phenomenal worlds we construct to maintain it are immune to objective inconsistency, and this is where anyone listening will be able to easily see what I'm talking about, because pointing out those objective inconsistencies is, anecdotally at least, somewhat baked into our political discourse, and it always has been. Without even knowing that we do it, we're all eager to weaponize the security and world building of others. We accuse them of a huge variety of things, intolerance, cognitive dissonance, which used to be commonly called mental gymnastics, uh, projection, bias, whether conservative or liberal, religious or otherwise, and my personal favorite, policing, where we criticize the tone and structure of another person's speech as if to say, the world this person lives in exists outside of a decent and moral universe. A great example of this is during the primaries and general election recently passed where Donald Trump was criticized for using adult language, with Clinton even basing a campaign ad on the tactic. Meanwhile, Tom Perez, the DNC chair, recently received the same treatment when he told an engaged crowd that, quote, Republicans don't give a shit about people, end quote. We take such approaches while consciously or otherwise, denying that the same can reasonably be applied to ourselves. Which means that when we do it to others, we just reverse the roles. Whatever we might say is intrinsically false because it simply cannot apply to the other person in their minds. And when that sort of tactic gets carried over to politics, and certainly when it's done to the extent that barely any political discourse can happen without relying entirely on those tactics things become more delicate than we could possibly understand at the time. We, all of us, you, me, the entire human race, uh, build comfortable worlds for ourselves as a matter of necessity. We have to, or, or else we find ourselves admitting that we have no agency, no ability to change the world around us to a better place. They feel, as much as a mental construct can, completely solid. And that's because they are part of the lens through which we view everything, from what's right and wrong to what makes us happy and sad. We derive everything from these worlds, down to what career we might be called to by a higher power, who we marry, whether we should have children or when, how we plan retirement, whether we choose to allow feelings of sympathy or disdain for victims of some genocide or another in this corner of the world or that. We use our need for continuity to guide our beliefs about God, or lack thereof, and then we further employ that need to determine who, besides us, could even believe in the same God that we ourselves do. We even apply our need for continuity in our subjective perception of reality itself to construct what our nation is, what it has been, and what it will be. Given that we can't control the future, I don't think it's fair to criticize people for having hopes and dreams for that future, but those have to be grounded in objective truth or at least as much of it as we can facilitate. When we change what we can easily verify to be true about the past or present, though, I'll admit that I'm slow to forgive that. So when we say that we need to make America great again, we have to understand what made it great before, which can only be done through factual observation. I mean, was it a time when people were better Christians? No. Christians have always been the same. It's kind of how Christian doctrine works, isn't it? Was it because everyone was better off? I mean, go back and convince the members of Martin Luther King Jr.'s movement of that, or the people who starved on the streets in the Great Depression, or the veterans who faced immense amounts of anxiety leading up to, during, and following World War II. Or perhaps go back and talk to the workers in the 1877 riots, or the rebels of Shays' Rebellion, or the Whiskey Rebellion, or the followers of John Brown. Was it the hardworking qualities of the colonists who formed the United States? I mean, go ahead and compare their virtues to the history of the Native American peoples, particularly the nations who were transplanted to the prairies and deserts of the American West. It's easy to find narrative histories that play into grandiose visions of accomplishment and moral superiority, or even that contain narratives demonstrating the opposite. For example, we hear a lot about how amazing George Washington was, but it's just as easy to build a narrative that he was an immoral, incompetent hack. He managed to lose quite a few battles that he should have won, after all, and his blustering admiration for his fellow countrymen seemed to follow strict rules of what constitutes a fellow countryman. White, educated, land-owning, probably wealthy, obviously male, the end. It's easy to find evidence for either view simply because that evidence exists. It's real. Washington was simultaneously both a profoundly great and profoundly awful man. Those are the facts. But which facts we prefer or excuse depends on what sort of world we live in, and thus what sort of facts our sense of stability demands both of us as well as the past. Now, you might be feeling a bit of whiplash by now. Glass, Donald Trump, Roman and Greek philosophy, sociology, hospitals, and George Washington. That must seem like an awful mashup of songs that just don't work together, so I'll try to bring it all together for you here. When we say that we need to make America great again, That idea brings up more questions than it does answers. What constitutes greatness? When, chronologically, was that greatness had? It seems that as Trump's administration continues, Ronald Reagan's presidency is when America was last great, while Reagan's administration looked back to another time where America was great. But any examination of history tells us that no time is truly great. Not if you pay attention, anyway. But it's difficult to challenge that for both sides of the aisle especially for conservatives, politically speaking. We draw an intense amount of stability from our perception of America's past, and that's an ongoing thing. Greatness for America is found far more often in heritage and institutional memory than it is in the future, in our hopes and the drive those hopes demand. We, as a culture, seem to have been formed with a permanent turning of the neck so that we're capable only of looking back and can only look forwards to the future as a matter of giving it a sort of side-eye. And that's something that shows, too, from our policies to our rhetoric to the the way in which we think about everything in the world. That's a very delicate thing to use in forming the identity, the ethos, of the most powerful state in the history of the world. The problem with delicate identities is that eventually they shatter under their own burdens. And we have a lot of burdens, too. Our fledgling empire, you could argue that it was forged in the crucible of nearly unending wars in the New World. It was cooled haphazardly, but successfully through the means of a highly deliberative government. Even for someone like me, that's kind of a beautiful thing. But we've never been very careful with that beautiful thing. And what often keeps me awake at night is this question. What and who is going to break it? Will it be rapid change that shocks the system to pieces? Will it be cold complacency that renders things inoperable? Violence? War? What? I don't have an answer for that. I'm not sure I ever will, but then neither will you in all probability. But I think that maybe it would be better for us to behave in accordance with the facts. What we have in life is incredibly fragile. And tossing around what we've made carelessly is a terrible way to make ourselves comfortable. Whether we're happy admitting it or not, we've slowly and deliberately built a crystal empire that is as fragile as it is powerful. The speech sampled in today's intro is from Ronald Reagan's farewell address, which was delivered in January of 1989. If you'd like to know more, find this podcast on Facebook or on Twitter at Today on America. You can find all materials referenced on the website at todayonamerica.wordpress.com, plus a few extra goodies while you're at it. And if you have been, thanks for listening.